Oh, by the way, Frank, are you uh, you're prepared for school yet? Oh, absolutely. Everything's uh, squared away. Excellent. <laughs> you too? Yes. Always. Uh. Welcome to Twirl the Week in Health Law, the Heat Dome podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. <laughs> We're recording this episode on July 20th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law at Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this week I'm I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that I, I'm not a faculty member at Maryland uh, <laughs> because uh, we're very <laughs> pleased to welcome John Mark Hirschhorn, who's professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. There he has a secondary appointment in epidemiology and public health. He's a prolific author and a distinguished researcher, uh, particularly uh, uh, working with NIH and holds or has held an incredibly impressive list of professional leadership positions. Big welcome to the pod, John Mark. Well, thank you, and I thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about something important, which is healthcare. Well, it's important, but it's been a bit quiet lately, hasn't it? As we've uh, gone into the <laughs> summer and uh, Congress has, uh, well, actually, they haven't really stopped doing anything. It's just they haven't started doing anything. But uh, although we're in a legislative lull that I suppose will continue until after the election, don't worry, faithful listeners. Uh, we will still have much to discuss on this year's uh, Back to School special that we'll release in early August with the sort of the, the greatest hits developments of the year. But there are a few things that I do think qualify for a lightning round, Frank, that I'd like to get off my desk. So I know you've got at least one. So uh, why don't I start off? And it's a, an issue, John Mark, that I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you go to meetings about because uh, one of the latest and uh, very popular variants on cyber attacks uh, and one that seems to have been uh, particularly aimed at hospitals is ransomware. Earlier in the summer, there were some sort of congressional stirrings related to uh, questions about uh, just how HIPAA security and breach notification played out with regard to ransomware attacks. OCR has now responded with a fact sheet, and much of this covers sort of familiar territory. Um, so uh, there's lots of talk about uh, making sure hospital security systems and disaster planning are up to scratch and so on. But what about those providers that get hit? Um, the HIPAA rule uh, defines breach, for example, for the purposes of the breach notification provision as, quote, the acquisition, access, use, or disclosure of protected health information, which compromises the security or privacy of the protected health information. Um, now, of course, ransomware actually sort of, if you like, puts a, an encryption um, layer around the data. So the question is whether there's really been a breach under the HIPAA rule. Now, the fact sheet says that breach notification would be required unless, of course, there's a very low probability of compromise. Um, uh, and given that the burden is on the provider under the rule here, um, it looks pretty clear that they're uh, uh, suggesting that there should be breach notification. And that hint is sort of doubled down on, I think, um, because uh, they say that uh, uh, the, the, the fact sheet says that the uh, healthcare provider should take into account when they're doing their risk analysis whether there's a risk to data integrity. 
And given what's going on with ransomware and what can happen with ransomware, uh, it's going to be hard to see you coming up with a question um, of no risk or low risk. So the bottom line seems to be uh, breach notification will be expected if you suffer a ransomware attack. And I think that's particularly interesting in any of these kind of ransom kidnapping kind of scenarios, Frank, because um, uh, typically victims would prefer to stay very quiet, pay the ransom and hope that the attackers move on to someone else. Yes, I think that's very insightful. And it is good to see also the rather expansive or expanding definition of harm, because I know that in the rest of privacy law, it's often bedeviled by the question of can you prove harm or not? And I think this sort of preemptive approach sounds sensible to me. Yeah. Well, next, let me um, uh, turn to some insurance. It's hard to get through one's daily uh, updates every morning at the moment without stories about insurance rates going up or insurers leaving exchanges or now we heard the, the, the strong rumor that the DOJ is getting very nervous about big insurer consolidation. So let me highlight a timely Commonwealth Fund piece by friend of the show, Mark Hall. Uh, go back to episode 47 if you want to hear a really great episode with Mark. Uh, Mark's piece is written with uh, Michael McHugh, um, and it's on the state of insurers' financial uh, health, if you like, uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and it's uh, it's well worth a read. The authors acknowledge there are the obvious uncertainties associated with these new markets, um, but suggest that actuarial precision will soon win out. Uh, the good news is that, uh, according to their analysis, only a minority of insurers have had a particularly bad time. Uh, the bad news, yes, we will be seeing price increases. And the authors, I think, make a sensible pitch to extend the reinsurance program uh, until the market reaches maturity. A couple comments there, Nick. I think that's very wise. I also wish that there had been a piece in Politico, I think, earlier this week that was very good uh, called Obamacare's Sinking Safety Net, sort of highlighting some of the problems for exchange plans. But I didn't think it paid enough attention to the degree to which Congress sort of pulled the rug out from under them in terms of defunding, I think, one of those reinsurance plans. And that's important. Also, you know, given the consolidation of, of insurers, I've got to put in the show notes uh, David Sirota's series about potential conflicts of interest at the Connecticut Insurance Office. I think that helped really raise the salience of the insurer mergers. And it was a very interesting series. Yeah, indeed. And as for my um, uh, lightning round contribution, I don't have a particular legal on the angle on this just yet, but I just want to highlight it for listeners, which is uh, Rachel Emma Silverman has a piece called Tackling Workers' Mental Health One Text at a Time, focusing on a number of companies that are essentially being contracted with by employers to uh, provide access to employees to mental health services, and some of them actually analyze the information on people's cell phones, like the searches that they do, if they leave leave the house or not, et cetera, to uh, mark them out for potential interventions from a health coach or connections to mental health practitioners. Now, all of the, the services say that the data, to the extent it goes to the employers at all, is aggregated and de-identified. Um, but I still think it's going to raise a number of very interesting privacy issues over time when more and more employers are choosing to ride on top of people's uh, phones these sort of apps that are meant to identify your behavior as detected by the phone as potentially indicative of the need for mental health interventions. 
Yes, I read that piece uh, with interest this morning, and and um, yeah, it it looks on its face benign, just as sort of wellness plans look benign on their face, uh, until you go back to this sort of original sin of healthcare, right, or our healthcare, that we've inserted employers uh, in into the system, and at some point, data is going to leak to anybody who's in the system, which uh, causes that problem. Absolutely, yeah, and just looking at. Deanna Faye's book, uh, Girl in Glass, you know, is a very dramatic example of re-identification. Yes. You know. Yes. Well, uh, somewhat related, I think, um, uh, and something that uh, touches on a fair amount of uh, my work over the last few years anyway, um, we have a new HHS report uh, this week entitled, quote, Examining Oversight of the Privacy and Security of Health Data Collected by Entities Not Regulated by HIPAA, unquote. Um, the report limits itself to mobile health and social media data collected by uh, non-covered entities that forevermore, I think, after this report will be referred to as NCEs. Um, and it's a decent uh, but descriptive report detailing the limitations of current uh, HIPAA law, um, albeit with a sort of generous nod towards the good work of the FTC. Uh, the report recognizes that, quote, individuals may have a limited or incorrect understanding of when data about their health is protected by law and when it is not. And it does recognize that increasingly patients are going to be their own data curators. But we really do need to fix this now. Um, I accept that policymakers are not responsible for the fact that increasingly medical data or medically inflected data are being uh, collected on social media or modified or created in other new technological spaces. But they are responsible for permitting an uneven policy environment that treats similar data to different uh, data protection models based upon the accident of where the data are created. They are responsible for continuing to assure patients of the confidentiality of their healthcare data because of the HIPAA rules when they're aware that increasingly healthcare data is flowing in a HIPAA-free zone. And they are responsible when they create, even mandate, the flow of HIPAA-protected data from protected zones to unprotected zones without warning patients of the consequences or suggesting management techniques. Uh, examples here would be otherwise good programs such as Blue Button or the Meaningful Use APIs. Um, as I said in my testimony on the Hill last week, uh, surely we need a sort of modified pottery barn rule here. If an agency is given the power to instruct how data should be moved around, including outside the HIPAA-protected zone, it should also be given given the power and responsibility to regulate its protection when it does so move. That makes a lot of sense, Nick, and I really look forward to reading this report. So, John Mark, thank you for tolerating our lightning round. It was very it was very interesting and fascinating. I think they're important topics, all of them. You know, whether it's health insurers or, you know, care we provide to our patients, I think it's important that the regulatory environment supports the ability to provide the care that's necessary. And synchronizes with it. Exactly. I mean, one of the big challenges nowadays with all the um, health IT that we're dealing with is really kind of improving interoperability um, and being able to access stuff in a secure and, you know, and appropriate manner. And that can be a real challenge at times. So I, I don't know what floor in the building your office is on um, or what you can see out of your window. Maybe you can see um, uh, uh, Frank's penthouse suite, uh, the other side of the campus. Um <laughs> But I, I can see Camden Yards, which is a wonderful <laughs> uh, 
a, a, a wonderful testimony to Baltimore. <laughs> but I am going to assume that you frequently have the occasion to sort of gaze across a campus like this. Uh, after all, you're at uh, a leading academic medical center. And I wonder whether when you do so gaze, uh, you have any general thoughts uh, that you'd like to share on sort of the state of medicine and the uh, and healthcare delivery and, and the profession that you have worked so hard in. You know, that's that's a wonderful opportunity. There's so many different ways to respond to something like that. And, and I would say that, you know, I feel very blessed to be able to operate in, a, uh, in an environment which allows access access to care, but I get very frustrated when trying to deliver that care because access is very uneven. Um, and the tools that we use, uh, not necessarily the wonderful technological tools, but a lot of the supporting infrastructure can be very challenged at times. So whether you're looking at um, providing care in an urban setting like I do and making sure people have appropriate follow-up if they don't need to be admitted or don't have a, a frank life-threatening emergency um, can be a bit of a challenge. And then if you go into Rural settings, trying to make sure that people have access to high-quality care is is can be a challenge. I mean, one of the nice things about the uh, Patient Protection, you know, and, and Affordable Care Act was the idea that people would have insurance. But unfortunately, having insurance doesn't always equal access. So you have to find someone who can take your insurance if you're able to to get the insurance. So I still think that we're facing challenging times for many patients. We have great healthcare if you can access it. And so I was wondering if we could move from the more general to the more specific. I know that a lot of your work and research has been in the area of acute care, John Mark, and I was wondering if you could describe for our listeners the what that covers. What is the acute care um, landscape? I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to define it. And I've written a little bit about that, published something in WHO Bulletin. And really, when I look at acute care, it's really kind of a, a large spectrum, and it includes the care that we deliver, deliver in the emergency department, but also to, uh, it relates to uh, urgent care. So people that may have um, an injury that's not life-threatening, but could potentially they're not sure if there's a broken bone or not. There's also the need for appropriate pre-hospital care, uh, short-term stabilization, perhaps trauma care or acute care surgery. So really, if you look at it, it's it's the, the, the sphere in which time becomes of the essence. And acute care really is there to deliver time, you know, time-sensitive care in a way that allows people to to be appropriately treated. So it's time sensitive regardless of the disease entity. Um, and and how you define that is difficult. There's what's called the prudent layperson standard in which if a prudent layperson thinks that they have a, 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 a an emergency or they have significant pain, then that's something that should be supported by the the, the healthcare infrastructure, including the insurers. And that that actually originated here in uh, in Maryland, but has now become a a, a federally uh, federally mandated or federal federal standard throughout the country. Got it. And one of the things that I think is really useful, I know you're on the board of the American College of Emergency Physicians is I see that they've developed a report card. And I think as of 2014, the overall U.S. Um, report card was a D plus. And uh, one state was uh, singled out for an F, Wyoming. 
and I, w I was wondering in terms of this uh, emergency care report card, why is the U.S. doing so badly? Why? What are the main problems that you're seeing right now? Well, and, and this is a great report card that was done in 2014, as you said, and it really is right before the implementation of the uh, Affordable Care Act, if you will. And it, it was so that so it was based on data from from say 2010, 2011, 2012. And the challenge really, we looked at at five major categories, such as access to emergency care, quality, quality and patient safety environment, medical liability environment, public health and injury prevention, and disaster preparedness. And then we looked at whatever whatever state was doing the best. So we, we, we really graded it on a curve. And when you look at that overall, there's some states that do quite well in one area or another. Um, but the challenge really comes down to the fact that there's no state that's doing it perfect across the board. And what this means is that perhaps in the disaster, one state won't do very well. In another, people have trouble accessing uh, care when they need it. And perhaps in another, they don't have good public health and injury prevention laws. So we looked at 130, roughly 135 metrics that were either publicly available or were surveyed across all the states. And we found that there's just a lot of area that's a lot of infrastructure that's lacking. Again, this is this is not looking at the care provided to an individual in the emergency department, but the infrastructure required to be able to deliver that care. Clearly, the Affordable Care Act included a quite major attempt to move routine acute care away from emergency rooms. Um, equally, and probably explained to an extent by the increase in the number of folks with insurance, We've seen um, great investment and growth in um, emergency care centers, acute care sort of centers at almost sort of at a retail level, some of which are independent uh, from uh, traditional healthcare entities, some of which increasingly are associated with or owned by hospitals. Um, how does th how do those kind of changes um, uh, factor into what you're seeing in in shifts in urgent care and uh, uh, the quality of, of urgent care uh, and access to it? I think that's a great question. I think it's also very complicated because it depends on what state and the kind of the regulations. So there's, if you look at the literature that's been published in which, and there's a couple states, Massachusetts and Oregon come to mind, in which they looked at uh, increasing Medicaid for patients, it did not decrease ED utilization, emergency department utilization, um, in part because, as I said before, having insurance doesn't guarantee access. So at least in the initial years after Medicaid expansion, uh, the e emergency department volumes, the ED volumes really did not decrease, they went up. What's interesting here in Maryland is that we're under a global budget model in which the hospitals are paid for their catchment area, which makes great sense if you're out in a rural environment in which the catchment is well-defined. I think it's a bit more challenging when you work in, in, in Baltimore. And so trying to figure out ways in which you can provide high-quality service while also minimizing cost, I think, is a real challenge that's being faced. A number of different areas are looking at expanding options for care, such as either freestanding emergency departments or increased urgent cares. The freestanding emergency departments are an interesting model, and it's, again, state by state. Some places they have to have a significant relationship with a, uh, a hospital or a similar healthcare entity. That's true here in Maryland. Uh, other states, they don't. And the number of states that have these increased uh, freestanding emergency departments are growing, but there's a number, there's a small 
small number that really you've seen it taken off in. And it's interesting because there's a recent publication uh, by Jeremy Schur in the Annals of Emergency Medicine looking at this and really seeing that the freestanding emergency departments are not surprisingly being placed where their health care, health insurance um, coverage is pretty good. Urgent cares are another model. Uh, and, and again, you have to put this within the regulatory environment. So if someone comes to the emergency department, I by law have to see them, I have to stabilize them, I then have to decide where to go from there. And that's under the uh, EMTALA law. Um, urgent cares are a little different. So trying to figure out how you can get people who may be coming into the emergency department to choose the urgent care versus not, I think you're going to have to place those urgent cares close to the emergency department um, to see if whether or not people will self-select there. The other advantage is often emergency uh, urgent cares are more rapid in their evaluation, but they don't have the infrastructure if someone's sick or they need additional services. So it's a very complex question. I think we're in very, uh, we're living in interesting times, if you will, and trying to sort out how we can better deliver services and then increase and improve access to to uh, appropriate acute care, I think is what we're ch- challenged with right now. Well, I really appreciate that background, John Mark, and it's something that I will probably be adding to my health law class this year because I I know when we teach EMTALA and then when we teach some of the 2004 clarifications from HHS about the uh, some of the aspects of EMTALA, that's always of great interest and, and it's very complex. And as you've noted, the corporate landscape make things, makes things even more complex. And just to add one more layer to this uh, already uh, rich uh, tapestry of issues, could you address for us uh, some of the problems that emergency departments are facing as insurers uh, fragment or as the rise of narrow networks has led to a lack of coverage or underinsurance for some folks that are on the exchanges or even some folks that are employer-sponsored insurance? Sure. Happy to talk a little bit and happy to talk a little bit about what the American College of Emergency Physicians is trying to get the federal government to recognize. The, the one thing I would say as we transition from Mentala is that we in emergency medicine are very aware of these issues because we face this on a daily basis when we practice. And so uh, we've become kind of the clinical experts, when you, if you will, when it comes to Mentala, because that's something we face on a day-by-day basis. So you have a patient who comes into your emergency department who, they, they have an emergency. They, they, it's not like they can choose the hospital they're going to. So they arrive in your emergency department and perhaps the hospital is within the network and the physician group is not. And they get seen, they get treated for their emergency, and then they get an out-of-network bill. And, and the issue here is that, you know, what we need to get the insurance companies to do is to have fair coverage for their patients. They, they, the, the patients shouldn't be, they have a life-threatening emergency, they should be having to foot a substantial amount of the bill for the care that they were provided. And that and, and so there's a little bit of a challenge. Now, within the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, there were there was a, a discussion about how to get healthcare providers to to pay for this uh, out of network um, care that was and there was a, what was called the greatest of three um, perspective, which was one of three standards, which was either the the meeting of the plan's contracting rates with similar payers, the plan's usual payment rate for out of network providers, um, or the Medicare rate. And the American College of Emergency Physicians for four or five years worked with the federal government with HHS to try to make sure there was an interim rule in back in, um, I want to say it was 2011, but don't quote me on that, please. Uh, there was an interim rule about it. And they and, and we tried to work with them for quite a while to, to assure that we could make sure the interpretation of uh, the Affordable Care Act came out. But when the final rule came out, 
which was, um, I believe, earlier this year, it really didn't address this. And in fact, they were using languages that, that, that if anything, put us even further back. And so the American College of Emergency Physicians said, wait a second, this is really not acceptable. And so, you know, patients can't choose where and when they need emergency care and should not be punished financially for having an emergency. So what we're saying is that insurance companies have failed to provide fair coverage for their insured patients and that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services requires should have transparency of data and fair insurance coverage. So emergency patients, patients who are out of network will, will have their, their services covered. And, you know, we had gone through this in the past because um, the um, New York sued, uh, sued insurers for what was called Ingenix, which was a, um, a database for providing a, a, a what was going to be a fair coverage uh, amount. And, in, and it pretty much was shown that uh, the insurance companies were at best dis- disingenuous and at worst, much worse than that, and were using kind of rigged, they had kind of rigged the marketplace so that they would be paying less money. And what's happening now is HHS is buying buying back into that whole process. There was even a, a, um, a new database created and HHS doesn't want to use that database, even though that was a result of the Ingenix lawsuit and the loss by the insurance companies of that lawsuit. So it, it's a very complicated topic, but the bottom line is that the way the insurance companies with, with uh, the federal government support is essentially they're cost shifting their expenses onto the patient or the provider um, without guaranteeing that the patient's going to have adequate coverage for the care they need. And I think this cost shifting issue is really a huge one over time because uh, when we look, for example, at projections of overall healthcare expenses in the U.S., sometimes these projections show a cost growth slowing for the federal government contribution or for healthcare spending overall. But some health economists and others have pointed out that the reason for this slowdown is essentially um, depressing, not the reason, but one reason for the slowdown could be a depressing of demand by just the cost-shifting dynamics that you're describing here. Um, I also just recall a discussion about um, medical debt and healthcare with, I think it was the PR person for American Health, America's health insurance plans. And they were really trying to argue that it's incredibly difficult administratively to keep straight who's in plans and who's not in plans and that doctors and providers are dropping in and dropping out all the time. Um, of course, my sense in hearing that was sort of the, the old meme on the internet, you had one job, you know, and it seems like if there's one job of the insurer, it's to sort of keep these things straight and to make a relatively make it relatively clear what the financial implications of um the healthcare decisions are going to be, and also to make it relatively straightforward for people to seek acute care when they need acute care without taking on enormous financial risk or uh, dumping that risk on to providers that aren't compensated. Um, one thing that I've just wanted to go further into is, you know, how are members of ASEP responding to changes in the regulatory environment? I know there are some concerns about burnout in the uh, medical profession overall. Or are you sensing some concerns there, or are there more constructive approaches that are, are materializing? I mean, I think that's a, again asking wonderful questions. I would say, in addition, in terms of the cost shifting components, since you brought that up, the other things that are being done is that there, besides the 
a narrow network and the um, the percentage that the patients have to be, have to pay their their deductibles have gotten huge and so someone could you know they buy their their plan to get coverage you know in quotation marks and they find that it doesn't provide them coverage at all except in um, perhaps a true life-threatening emergency and the amount that has been cost shifted to them is thousands of dollars and in a person who's maybe making you know fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year that's all the discretionary um, spending they have plus some for a year and and so what's happened is that for them it's not just the out of network it's not just the um, the their fees for seeing out of network it's not just the narrow networks it's also the fact that their deductible has gotten so high that they they, they really having trouble affording health care. In terms of the things that my, you know, our members are seeing in, in ASEP, uh, I, I think we've gotten a strong swell of support from our members for for the lawsuit that we've initiated against the federal government because they recognize that this has a significant adverse impact on their patients. And so the, the idea here is to really try to support the, the, the provider, but more importantly, make sure that patients get adequate coverage. I think there are a number of other things the federal government has done over the years that has increased the um, the, the, the now the, the 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 struggles that all healthcare professionals are doing. So, for example, having now electronic medical record. In the old days, when I had paper charts, I could finish up my shift. You know, get out. Maybe I do half an hour to finish up my charts and get out of there. Now it's not uncommon for me to spend an hour to hour and a half trying to make sure I've clicked all the right clicks and dictated what I need to dictate and all the other components to make sure that my chart is met is the standard that's required um, for in, in you know electronic medical record. It's going to be adequate for the billing. It's got the appropriate you know, um, legal um, kind of malpractice support that I might need, all those different components. So the time that I want to spend with the patient, I'm spending in front of the computer. And so it's a real challenge to, you know, you go into medicine to help people, you don't go into medicine to to work on a computer. And and so being able to have that, you know, interpersonal relationship in an environment that's just becoming more and more regulatory burdensome, um, both in from a financial as well as from an operational perspective, I think is a huge challenge. And I think the you know, my, the members of ASAP are happy when we at the leadership are make, trying to make a difference in their lives. Um, and again, in the lives of the, our patients. So we're well aware of those issues with regard to EHRs and indeed other HIT that finds itself into our healthcare uh, providers. In your experience at your institution, have you found any good ways to manage those issues? I mean, we've seen, for example, some healthcare providers hire scribes. Others uh, perhaps develop their own software or, or uh, tablets and so on. Is there anything sort of working that, that, that suggests there's light at the end of that particular tunnel for you? No. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, you know, and, and I, at my institution, we've recently changed to an electronic health record, um, which is challenging. And it works okay, but I, as it's just added to our, our, our burden from a regulatory perspective. Some people like scribes. They're not universally accepted. They're, they're very common in the emergency department setting. Um, I think there's some challenges with that. You have to be very careful if you're doing, say, macros or other templated type of language within your uh, within your uh, you know EHR um, because there are um, regulatory concerns related to simply automating that process. So, uh, you know, I, I'm being a little facetious and the answer is no. I think there's multiple solutions, but I have to say at my institution, um, we're a little behind the curve on this 
and uh, and uh, it's a bit of a challenge. I mean, it does seem to me that over time, and I I know we discussed earlier, John Mark, the growing literature uh, in medical journals elsewhere about scribes. Um, I did this conference a few weeks ago that was um, this White House sponsored artificial intelligence now discussion about the future of AI in healthcare. And one of the themes that I saw in the conference, both from the lawyers there, the social scientists, and some of the roboticists uh, from Carnegie Mellon and Facebook and other institutions, was a growing interest in complementary automation, you know, or the development of technology that was being developed with direct input from physicians and from people at the front line of providing care and from other providers. And I'm wondering, you know, do you perhaps that might be one longer term uh, approach is to make sure that that's done. But then on the other hand, when I look at, say, some of the largest medical record providers, I mean, I've heard a story that essentially the largest one really was the one that had as many doctors involved as possible. And yet still, it seems as though doctors seem kind of beleaguered by it. And so I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what the exact answer is here. Perhaps a comparative perspective, you know, looking around the world. Are there places where people are happier? I don't know, but it does seem it's disheartening to hear so many tales of burnout and so much sort of concern about the combined um, regulatory burden and um, medical and, and technological burden on providers and to not really have a sense of what's the, the best way out. I mean, some of the some of the electronic health records that were created um, with emergency physician input were, are some of the best. Unfortunately, that's fine for our setting but doesn't work throughout the institution. The institution looks at the larger perspective. I mean, I think some of the newer ones have input from um, healthcare providers and there's, you know, it, it does make them in some ways better than others. But again, I think it's a real challenge. And I think one of the greater challenges is the fact that there's a real lack of interoperability. So if you take a look, you, you know, you want to be able to, if I'm working in one institution and a patient is coming and has records in another institution, I want to make sure that I can act, access that information. And uh, in most places around the country, that's very difficult to do. Now, there are a couple places in which we're seeing that occur. One is in Maryland with a, a system called CRISP, um, which is uh, Chesapeake Regional Information Service for Patients or something along those lines. But the bottom line is that what it is, is it's a, it, it connects hospitals so that in when I'm in my e, you know, EHR or I can uh, access it from, from, the, from a web browser, I can go in and look at records records from another hospital. Now, it's not universal here because the hospitals have to opt in. Um, they're really trying to expand it so that I could perhaps even look at, at um, radiological images. Out in Washington, there's another group that has uh, has done the same thing, um, and that includes Washington, Oregon, and parts of Northern California. And they're, again, trying to allow the healthcare provider ability to access records that may not be within their own system. What's interesting in this is, is that when I'm practicing in the emergency department, a patient will come to me and say, well, can't you just get the records? And it's like, well, to be honest, I can't get the records from another hospital in most places. Often I can, but it's not true, you know, universally. So I think that in addition to the challenges of the um, of the record of the uh, EHRs in the institution is the ability to access other institutions. And and again, you know, there have been statements from HHS at all in terms of, you know, folks committed to improving interoperability. But I, I have to be a little um, cynical or, or cautious about 
about this. Uh, I think the proof is in the pudding, if you will, because why would, uh, unless there's pressure from the federal government or demand from consumers, why would healthcare, uh, health IT um, uh, entities want to share if they make money off the data? So I, I think that, you know, we'll see how things happen over time, but improving interoperability would go a long way to being able to provide better care for our patients. And so say all of us. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Dr. Hirschen for joining us. Uh, John Mark, that was great fun. It was great. And I really appreciate the time to talk about, you know, something that, of course, is near and dear to my heart, which is improving the care, the acute care for our patients. And we could tell that. And you can find John Mark on Twitter at Dr. John Mark. That's D-R-J-O-N-M-A-R-K. We post our show notes at tool.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where are you going to be reached this week during the heat? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>